song that you do the motion shifts. Minute after day to cut from the bottomless pit. But my hand, hand, hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you give to see another songs of freedom? Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy. Cause none of them can stop the time. And how long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? And some said it's just a part of it. Well, we've got to fulfill the book. Won't you help me sing another song of freedom? It's all I ever had. Oh, redemption song, yes, Lord. Redemption song.
judge said, screw them, boys, you're only human. They brought it on themselves by being born a woman like a mountain's there to climb and food's there to be eaten. Woman's there to rape, to be shoved around and beaten. The judge took his position, the judge he wouldn't budge, so he got out horse or dog or file laid a bank. Simonson will haul you in and throw you in the clank. But violate a woman, your equal and your peer. The judge will slap you on the wrist and lay the blame on her. The judge took his position, the judge he wouldn't budge. So he got out this position and we're gonna screw the judge. Draw a true conclusion from what Simonson has said. Woman has to live in fear and cover up her head. She has to dress in Florida and lock herself in cages. And this kinky judge in Madison is from the Middle Ages. The judge took his position, the judge he wouldn't budge. So we got out this position and we're gonna dump the judge.
broke me, yeah, I'm broken. You're still sorry, and there's still no apology. Good morning to you. This is the B, and it's Labor and Love Radio. 10 o'clock every Saturday, we come to you through Mutiny Radio and mutinyradio.fm, a radio station and a community arts center. Welcome. We started out that set with Bob Marley and his redemption song, by playing for change. Playing for change is a group that produces videos, recordings of songs, and uh, breaks the component parts of it, the instrumentals and the vocals into many different parts. You get people from one part of the world playing a, a bass lick, you know, some bass. Then you get a singer from Jamaica. Then you get someone from South Africa or Italy or whatever playing these songs, right? So, hmm, nice concept because you get the idea of the collectivity of music. Okay, well, we had Redemption Song by Bob Marley playing for change. Then we had a couple of repeats from last week. I like to do that to keep songs in my mind, you know. We we play certain songs for certain reasons. And uh, these songs are The Judge Said, Alvina Reynolds, from... Uh, case in the 1970s where the judge left, let off a rapist and um, implicitly blamed uh, the rape on the woman. And uh, this happened recently in Santa Clara as well. A young man from Stanford who was an outstanding swimmer, athlete, um, raped a woman and left her behind a dumpster after a party. She'd been given a date rape drug and he'd taken advantage of her, but while he was in the act now, while he was in the act, a couple of Swedish guys found her, heard her yelling and then came and found her. The rapist ran away. And the local judge uh, slapped his wrist, gave him a three-month sentence, and suspended some of the time. So, Malvina Reynolds is writing about that. In this case, they wanted to recall that judge, and they were able to do it. This is in Wisconsin. And then the chicks, 
The chicks with the redoubtable Natalie Maines and gas lighter. That's kind of like when your president says something and then two days later someone asks about him about it and he says that he didn't say that. Or he says that he's got a health plan already, a great Republican health plan. Where is it? The man is a gaslighter. He wants to control the conversation right in the present, set it up the way he wants it, and then get out. I didn't say that. I was joking. Mr. Trump has a million of them. Okay, so let's see. Um, I always like to start out with our credos and then get into, you know, whatever it is we're doing. Here are our credos. First one, Pity the Nation. This is by Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, from the Beat Movement of the 50s. That's where he started, owner of City Lights Books. And um, he writes, Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars whose sages are silenced and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well fed pity the nation oh pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty I guess if this show has a purpose, you want to talk about a purpose, about why we're here? We want to connect the energy of the past, that beautiful, powerful energy that blew the nation out of Vietnam, that rose up all in all, every, every institution, every uh, presupposition and um, took to the streets and changed the world forever. Now it needs to be changed again. Robert Reich says, your reminder that the richest 1% own half of the stock market and the richest 10% own almost all of it 10% own 92% of the stock market. So when Trump brags about the stock market, he's not talking about the economy, that 90% of the Americans in, inhabit. No, no, he's signaling to his buddies or 
his wannabe buddies. He wants to be. He wants to be admired. Here's one from Utah Phillips, and this gets to our theme, which is labor, which is the labor movement. Utah Phillips writes, kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. In fact, management fought it every step of the way. These laws were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. No root, no fruit. Okay, this is how it is for women. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. As a woman, you're caught in that double whammy. A guy rapes you, and he gets caught. You want to undo the rape. Don't want to deal with the baby. Get an abortion. You're in jail longer than the man. Now, what is that about? This is from Jesse Mimmer. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall deport the illegals BS is just the 1% again trying to convince the working poor to blame another subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing that the reason they are all poor is due to vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with it wage stag stagflation. Productivity goes up Wages stay the same or go down. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. You're poor because you're not making enough money. And you're not making enough money because your bosses don't want to pay you enough. Okay, this one, I mean, I, I keep playing this one 
because there's always a person who says, this not that in the politics, you know? I, I don't know about that stuff. So the Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles say, you're just not that into politics. Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. <laughs> it's time to get into politics. If you don't exercise control over your life, to whatever extent, somebody else is controlling your life. Okay, so those are our credos. Those are the things that we believe here on Mutiny Radio. And uh, get on to some radio labor. Radio labor is our radio labor is World labor. World labor. You know, noise and facts, things that are happening in the world labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger. At its national conference held virtually on September 15th, the Trades Union Congress in the UK held a session on racism. The session opened with a video. And just to be clear, in the UK, the term black is used in its broadest political sense to encompass everybody who is a person of color. UK trade unions stand with our sisters and brothers in the US and worldwide, demanding an end to racist state violence. And we stand against racism here in the UK, in the workplace and in society. We will build a truly inclusive, anti-racist, trade union movement. Structural racism is a matter of life and death for too many black workers. Black workers have some of the highest death rates and are overrepresented in lower paid, less secure jobs, where the risk of COVID-19 is much higher. We stand for economic justice for black workers, for a ban on zero hours contracts, for safety at work, where black workers are safe, valued, respected, where the institutional racism that wrecks lives is seen and ended. One of the delegates who spoke during the conference was Zita Holborn, who represented Artist Union England, the AUE. Race equality must be at the heart of our union movement. Black communities have been through a huge collective trauma over recent months, with black people three times more likely to die of coronavirus state brutality and killings, racial profiling, impacts on jobs, precarious employment, lack of protection and safety at work, microaggressions to systemic and institutional racism, and the horrific killing of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Rayshard Brooks in the USA. But we mustn't forget all the black people who have died at the hands of the state here in the UK, such as Sarah Reed, Sean Rigg, Christopher Alder, and Kevin Clark, whose inquest is happening right now, and who told police officers I can't breathe as they restrained him.
plus those who died in racist attacks such as Al-Tab Ali, Stephen Lawrence and Jay Abertam. The TUC Black Workers Conference and Race Relations Committee have supported the annual Family and Friends Campaign, March Against Deaths in Custody, for many years, and we call on all unions to take part. It's crucial for the union movement to provide practical solidarity to black communities and black grassroots groups fighting racism, including the Global Black Lives Matter movement and the Windrush Justice Campaign groups and the victims who still have not received compensation and their descendants who are also targeted because of racist immigration laws. Racism is a global issue, so our trade union response must be global. And this is why I'm part of a global justice for George Floyd campaign, which not only includes George Floyd's legal team, but also campaigners for the USA, UK and the African continent. Our work to challenge racism at work must be connected with campaigning against racism in society and across the world. That must include supporting those from the global south displaced because of climate change. And I'm proud to have been involved in forming the European Public Services Union Network to Welcome Migrants to Europe and in coordinating the EPSU Black Workers Network. We need to ensure there are no barriers to participation in our movement and to create a positive legacy for future generations so they don't have to protest with signs to remind us that black lives matter. The Race Relations Committee established eight years ago the Roots Cultural Identity Art Exhibition in the name of Stephen Lawrence as part of, the T as part of one of the recommendations of the TUC Stephen Lawrence Task Group to provide opportunity and platform for young black artists. Another aspect of legacy is that the legacies of enslavement and colonialism exist in processes, policies and symbols. They allow racism to thrive and linked to this is our continued participation in the campaign for reparations, which is crucial. When enslavement of African people was made unlawful, those doing the enslaving were compensated the equivalent of billions in today's money, keeping future generations of their families in wealth and privilege. But reparations isn't just about financial compensation, it's about education and healing. These things must go hand in hand with tackling low pay and precarious work. That was Radio Labor's official report about how labor in the UK has come out against racism. Um, the labor movement has never been just about on-the-job training, on-the-job situations. It's never been just about how much money you make. Although a lot of people sold it out for that. A lot of people figured, oh, well, that's good. We'll take the money and we'll take the uh, better working conditions and we'll take the pension. We'll take all that stuff without turning around and looking around and looking at all the other workers, without working to liberate all workers. Because the country doesn't run without workers. Everybody knows that. Can you imagine, you know, Columbus and his friend uh, standing on the beach and watching uh, the Indian slaves as they 
as they take the crops and the gold and whatever you they got, you know, and loading it on the ship, the screams of native women being raped as the white men pass them around, the money you're making when you're thinking about all the money you make, every slave there that you got is making you money, you're piling up the money. Hey, this is great. You know, we ought to set up the country like this. Yeah, let's do that. What do we call it? Oh, I don't know. But all it is is they do all the work. Okay, they do the work. Unless we choose to. They do the work and we make the money. What a beautiful thing. Keep trying to think of a name for it. I can't think of a good name for it. But uh, that's how it started, huh? You, you had this situation based on brutalization, based on extracting wealth from other people, and you made it into a world system. Pretty good, huh? Okay, how about we're waiting for radio labor. What's happening on labor notes? Okay. It says here, let's see. What did I just do now? Pardon me. Nice little jazz interlude there. Um, 
Labor notes. Let's see. Forty years of working class films. Now this is something, you know, we don't talk much about. There aren't that many labor films and there aren't that many very good labor films. But let's see what Labor Notes says. If you search for films about labor, one makes every list. Norma Ray most iconic of union movies was a critical and box office smash when it came out in 1979. The same year, Labor Notes published its first issue. That moment when more Americans than ever before were union members, it wasn't surprising that a movie about a gutsy labor organizer would prove popular. Now the labor movement was not then surging, but was on the cusp of collapse. That was the year before the big confrontation between Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controllers. They say feature films expressly about class conflict have always been rare in American cinema and in recent years have become even more so. So let's see. One of the best up and out films is Real Women Have Curves, a charming yet serious working class feminist anthem, a far better one in my view than Nine to Five. These real women work really hard though, they can also have fun as shown in what may be the most exuberant scene ever based in a sweatshop. film derives its warm authenticity from Latina women. Director Patricia Cardosa, screenwriter Josefina Lopez, and a host of superb actors, among them America Ferrera. Okay. In 99 Homes from 2014, the human wreckage caused by the foreclosure crisis is wrapped into a powerful suspense drama, underscoring that our most destructive criminals live in mansions and collect stock dividends. I'd call Spike Lee's brilliant Do the Right Thing a down and out film demonstrating how racism fuels a righteous rage felt by African Americans and splinters in the working class. Is also wickedly funny. Down but dealing with it. They mention uh, Mystery Train, Smoke Signals, an excellent film about life on the reservation, Napoleon Dynamite. These are stories about misfits, about people who, through no fault of their own and through the fault of society, are marginalized. Silkwood, 1983, a biopic about the life and mysterious death of union activist Karen Silkwood, who battled to expose unsafe 
conditions at the plutonium plant where she worked. Cher, Meryl Streep, the rest of the cast is terrific, too. Kurt Russell, I believe. My opinion may be heretical, but I've often always preferred Silkwood in its treatment of unions, women, and working class life over Norma Ray. Two films center on organizing the uneventful Meituan, 1987, and a really beautiful, not one people are not really that conscious of. 10,000 Black Men Named George, Robert Townsend's tribute to A. Philip Randolph. And uh, The Killing Floor, it's another excellent one about the situation in Chicago in 1919, where white mobs overreacted again to uh, rumors and went through the black section of Chicago killing people. Was it with Danny Glover? Um, about people who are trying to keep their factory going. Uh, it's a meat processing plant. Okay. Night John, the most sophisticated treatment on film of many forms of slave resistance. The Killing Floor, Night John remembers a kid's book for uh, teenagers about a guy who uh, keeps coming back to the plantations to free slaves, help slaves get free. Anyway, this is all by Tony Gilpin and uh, The Long Deep Judge is a book she wrote, a story about big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. Okay. Let's see here. We're getting Radio Labor yet? I already got part of Radio Labor, but I want to get the full report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 23rd, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, why the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States could criminalize journalism. 20,000 higher education workers in Australia are about to lose their jobs. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never weaken. Stand and hold that picket line. This is Radio Labor. The United States is trying to extradite Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks from the United Kingdom. 
U.S. government lawyers say Mr. Assange, an Australian citizen, illegally obtained and published classified information related to the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The charges include accusations that he worked with Chelsea Manning to hack computers and spread classified documents. To find out more about the extradition and the hearings which were held in September, I talked to Tim Dawson. Mr. Dawson is a member of the National Executive of the National Union of Journalists in Britain and Ireland. He attended the extradition hearings on behalf of the NUJ and the International Federation of Journalists. I began my conversation with Mr. Dawson by asking him why the extradition of Julian Assange is an issue for journalists. Because the successful prosecution of Julian Assange would have the effect of criminalizing journalism. Let me explain why that is. To, to understand this, you need to look at the what's known as the second superseding indictment of Julian Assange. So this is where the United States sets out the terms on which it wishes to prosecute Mr. Assange. These are all in the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917, which is a very vague and, and quite a notorious piece of legislation for persecuting progressives and working-class organizers and trade unionists. And within the terms of this act, it defines what it seeks to prosecute Assange for, which is effectively nurturing a contact who he hopes to obtain information from and helping that contact Socialism. to locate information America. that he thinks might be of use and providing advice on how he might sidestep the security of the computer network from which he's going to take that information. Now, those actions are ones that thousands of investigative journalists will have performed many, many times. They are the actions of somebody locating and coaching a source, somebody who has recognized illegality or immorality within an organization that they're working for and helping them to provide that information for journalistic purposes. So in a way, whether you think Julian Assange is a journalist or an activist or, or, or whatever, doesn't really matter because it's the actions that he took which are journalistic for which the U.S. is trying to prosecute him. And if they are successful, it will mean that anybody engaging in that kind of work with classified material would be at risk of prosecution by the U.S., which is a frankly terrifying prospect. I have heard it said that Mr. Assange used his journalistic expertise to interfere in a U.S. election and so deserves to be punished. How do you respond to this? Well, so, so, so this relates to the leak of emails within the Democratic National Committee in 2016. That event plays no part in the attempt to prosecute Assange whatsoever. So nothing relating to that leak and how that happened is mentioned in any of the U.S. case. Um, I myself wonder about how that leak happened and why it came out as it did. Um, I understand why some might think that even if this isn't what Assange is charged for, maybe he deserves it. But I suppose fundamentally I believe in the rule of law and um, if criminal acts somehow led to those leaks or were involved in those leaks coming to light, then let the relevant authorities place those charges in front of a court and let's hear the evidence. As things stand, they play no part whatsoever in the case that's currently ongoing. What happens next? Well, 
in early January, the judge who has been hearing this case will hand down her ruling. The closing submissions of defence and prosecution will be submitted in writing in the coming weeks, so we might hear some stories from those. And she will rule either that Assange is to be extradited or she will deny the extradition. I think if she rules that he is to be extradited, then you can expect to see this back in court and for that process to, to take really quite some time. It's hard to find exactly comparable cases, but if you look at the case of Abu Hamza, who was extradited from Britain to face justice in the United States, the period from his arrest in the UK to his final prosecution in the United States was about a decade. And I think that gives some sense of how long this has the potential to drag on for, uh, you know, to the considerable detriment of Mr. Assange, I don't doubt, and cost to the British taxpayer. One of the sectors being hit hardest by the pandemic is higher education. To find out what's been happening, Education International has conducted a series of webinars about the issue. EI is the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators. One of the participants in a webinar about COVID and the higher education sector was Matthew McGowan, the General Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union in Australia, the NTEU. Around about 30% of the funding for the sector comes now from international student income. And that has had uh, the, the closing of the borders and the shutting down uh, of uh, international travel has really dramatically changed climate for the university sector. So the most dramatic impact on the sector is a loss of some three and a half to four billion dollars in this year alone. And if we project forward into uh, next year and the following year, the full estimates are looking pretty grim. That number could easily double or triple. Um, uh, we, we are in a very serious position. All of our universities uh, are starting to lay staff off. Um, and uh, it particularly you'll find uh, that casual staff are being laid off in very large numbers. Um, we are facing a crisis within our institutions in the research front. Most of our universities cross-subsidise uh, research from uh, the international student income. Governments of, of all persuasions over the last couple of decades have used international students as excuses to expand the sector, but also to reduce the government's responsibility for fully funding the sector. And so increasingly what we've seen is institutions become dependent upon that international student income for their very, for their very existence and for the funding of many of their activities, including research. It is a very serious problem. We are uh, seeing at the moment, we are expecting something of the order of uh, 20,000 jobs to disappear out of the sector over the next six to nine months. The government has done nothing to provide any support to the sector so far. We have a budget coming up and it's quite possible that, that there will be some relief provided to the institutions, but it's unlikely to go anywhere near the losses that the institutions are facing. So our major crisis at the moment is holding on to people's jobs. We are seeing people terminated at a really rapid rate. Some 4,000 contract staff are up at the end of this year. Those are primarily research staff. The people who are most dramatically affected, there are courses being cut all over the place. Probably the lion's share of those full-time uh, job losses will go to the professional staff as the institutions cut back as much as they possibly can. The institutions and the government in some ways are using the crisis 
to further objectives that they may have already had in their back pockets and that they have been pursuing for some time. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of all their work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the imprisonment this week of the leadership of the Railway Workers Union of Thailand, who received three-year sentences for their union's workplace health and safety campaign. We also covered an all-women hunger strike by Albanian oil workers and why a group of garment workers in Myanmar are continuing their fight to organize despite the repression they face. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage include the organizing efforts by domestic workers, most of them also women and migrants, as the immediate shock of the pandemic wears off. Many of these efforts are the result of work done by the newest of the global union federations, the International Domestic Workers Federation. The pandemic's impact on domestic workers has been particularly acute in Africa and in parts of Asia. Countries from which migrant workers originate are seeing far less in remittances to workers' families, while the workers themselves are routinely abandoned by employers and governments in the countries in which they were working. In most cases, such workers have been forced to depend on charity for survival. Another long-standing COVID-19-related global crisis has been the difficulty ship crews have been having in getting off their ships and to their homes. The International Transport Workers Federation and its affiliates representing ship crews have been working to ensure safe paths home for these workers, but the negotiations are complicated by the number of governments involved in what might have been, just a year ago, a simple connecting flight. As with the domestic workers' crisis, the inability of ship crews to return home has consequences for other workers. Whilst one crew may be forced to remain aboard long after the workers should have gone on leave, another crew is forced to sit at home without an income. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of the challenges facing women sheep shearers in New Zealand and a comparison of the effects of the pandemic on garment workers in Bangladesh and Vietnam. The free health and safety news... It's cleaning up. We're going home. It's over. I'm right with essays, nigga. Fuck it. Go to the crib. Go to the, go to the casa. Hasta luego, man. Muy bien. You swear to God, these motherfuckers want to play it. You want to get live? Subscribe.
right here. Everybody need to take notes on this and just know that it looks so much better when you're sticking together. Amigos, get about this motherfucker. Y'all got him fucked up. Look at him. They sent a couple of them home. They all packed they shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker. Huh? Uh, oh, my mama. All that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. They packed up. Yeah, I see. It's over. Them mums now packed up and dipped. They thought they was going to play with these amigos, and they said, oh, yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving. And they not bullshitting. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs, look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This is motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me here geeked up on my Malcolm X shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. And they said, fuck you, we out. We not working no more today. Kiss my ass, nigga. I'll let y'all tomorrow on my mama. That's great. Look, ain't nobody here. We're just cleaning up. We're going home. It's over from right with the essays, nigga. Fuck it. Go to the crib. Go to the, go to the casa. Hasta la luego, man. Muy bien. You swear to God, these motherfuckers want to play it. Okay, so yeah, that I played that twice because I, I wanted to explain what was happening. Um, it's so uh, inspiring when people stand up for their rights. It's so inspiring when they do it individually and when they do it collectively. We'll see, you know. Most people are thinking Mr. Trump won't be elected. Uh, what will happen? What would a Biden administration do for labor? One thing it could do is replace the pro-industry National La Labor Relations Board. National Labor Relations Board is supposed to be looking out for the interests of American workers. But it's not. It's been um, stacked by four pro-industry, pro-corporation uh, people. And what's the big problem now? Well, we still have a problem with the S-word. Trump, uh, during the debates, throws that out calls Kamala Harris and Ber by implication Bernie Sanders she said well he said well her his his program Joe Biden's is just like Bernie's which is not true Kamala Harris is just like Bernie which is not true but he's using the ancient fear of the s word 
And we can talk a little bit about how that came about. But here's Fiorentini, Francesca Fiorentini, talking about this boogeyman under America's bed. Bed. Our chupacabra, our candy man. Say it three times into a mirror and your kid goes to college for free. Americans are so used to demonizing socialism that most don't really know what it is, or they're shy to admit that they're curious about it. Like how most adults are afraid to watch the Twilight series because what if they discover they're totally on Team Edward? But thanks to a 76-year-old self-described democratic socialist and now a whole host of candidates running openly as socialists, maybe it's time to understand it. We're looking at some of the biggest myths told about the S-word. Hit it, Kate! We've all heard socialism described by the right. You wait in lines for hours, you eat what little nutrients are available, and everyone wears the same thing. Why does socialism sound a lot like Disneyland? Socialism is a favorite straw man of the right, used to disparage any candidate that mentions anything that resembles something like generosity, whether it's Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders. And instead of including socialist voices on television to clarify, they actually have segments like this. I gotta go to the liberal panel. It's gotta be tough for you to look at uh, your candidates and see how boring and stiff they are. They're stiffer than you. Well, they are. Well, thanks a lot. But they did talk about policy, unlike the Republican debates, and it's not socialism, it's capitalism, it's democratic socialism within a capitalist society. You wanna talk about giving stuff away? Yeah. It's giving stuff, what Republicans do is give stuff to the top 1%. Is Social Security socialism? Medicare socialism? Yes. Medicaid socialism? Yes. You wanna take all that away? I do. I want to take all of it away. See you how that stupid works panel. In the campaign. I want to take it all away. I don't want the government taking my money. I can spend it better than they can, and I can't believe I'm yelling at you and again. Oh my God. Greg Gutfeld just lost an argument to an animatronic gag he scripted to make himself look smarter. That's like getting your ass kicked by a punching bag. Seriously though, there are many different definitions of socialism depending on who you ask. And just because a country has socialist policies doesn't mean it's a socialist country. There are degrees of socialism. So let's just start out with a safe Wikipedia description. Socialism is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production. That sounds pretty harmless, and yet, of course, that's what a collectively edited, nonprofit, free encyclopedia would say. And look how that turned out. Oh, pretty good. You can think about socialism as democracy for the economy, an economy that takes planning and forethought and doesn't just leave wealth distribution to the invisible hand of the market, which, in case you were wondering, looks like this for the 99% of us. And yet, instead of having an honest conversation about what a more democratic economy could look like in a country with the worst income inequality since before the Great Depression, we hear this. Listen up, all you Bernie Sanders supporters. We'll say it again. Socialism doesn't work. Socialism keeps failing. This is Socialism 101. We've seen it fail over and over again. It's failing now because of problems inherent to socialism. Myth number one. Socialism's been attempted and failed. But has it truly? 
Critics point to examples of leaders who took a twisted version of Marxism and implemented it to the extreme, like Pol Pot of Cambodia or Stalin's Soviet Union. But those are better examples of totalitarianism than anything else. As Noam Chomsky, linguist and man who lost award for most desirable lefty grandpa to a younger, hotter Jew put it, the Soviet Union wasn't actually socialist. He says Russia called itself that to trick those sympathetic to socialism, and the U.S. did the same to make people more afraid of socialism. The core notion of at least traditional socialism is that uh, what you mentioned, that working people have to be in control of production. The Soviet Union is the exact opposite of that. Uh, working people had no control over anything. They were uh, virtual slaves. Also, why judge an ideology on its most extreme examples? That's like judging a love of baseball by the Red Sox fan who carved red socks into his forehead with a broken Miller Lite. Loving baseball is the least of his problems. Funny enough, though, even baseball isn't safe from the myth that socialism has failed. Listen to this announcer calling a Dodgers game suddenly go off on socialism when a Venezuelan player steps up to bat. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. Anyway, 0-2. Oh my God, I truly hope that somewhere out there, there is a Spanish language announcer mentioning the failures of capitalism when calling an American soccer game. Bueno, son malos porque no hay dinero en el fútbol. No es como el fútbol americano donde hay muchos momentos para publicidades. El capitalismo vence al deporte. Piénsenlo, cero a dos. Yes, Venezuela is going through an insane political crisis right now, but it's not clear that that crisis has anything to do with their socialist policies. And since that would take another 10 minutes to break down, instead, we threw a couple of links to articles below for you to read. Yes, read. But what we never hear when discussing Venezuela is how putting their nationalized oil money into social programs led to a dramatic reduction in poverty and an increase in literacy. And how about Cuba? Has socialism failed there? Cuba is not a democracy, for sure, but it also has the highest literacy rate in all of Latin America, not to mention free healthcare and free higher education. And now they're developing a lung cancer vaccine, and that means they'll be able to safely smoke all the cigars that we can't even import. Instead, we've been left with vaping, which is somehow less cool than cancer. Another myth we hear is that socialism is too expensive, but too expensive for who? In France, the government covers all or pays back at least 70% of healthcare costs, which meant a lot when this couple had twins. Even though the boys were delivered by cesarean section and Nomi spent nine days in a private room, leaving the hospital, they paid 19 euros. 19 euros. Coincidentally, the dollar price of an Uber ride to the ER in the US to avoid going into debt over an ambulance ride. Compare that French experience to an American couple who went bankrupt after also having twins who were premature. It was 2.2 million. Oh, we lost everything. We paid every bill we could. We sold everything we could. We sold our car. We sold our furniture. We sold our clothing. We liquidated our 401ks. We got, we, I mean, we sold everything. Jesus, 
But you might be thinking, well, France spends more money on healthcare, and you would be wrong. Uh, France spends 11% of its GDP, and the US spends 17.2% of our GDP on healthcare. And France is consistently ranked as having one of the best healthcare systems in the world, while we clock in last when compared to the 10 most developed countries. But on the bright side, Trump is working hard to make us not a developed country. So what about students? Is socialism too expensive for them? Because in many countries around the world, university tuition is essentially free. In Germany, it's even free for foreigners to benefit from, like Americans. I had heard things like I'd be able to drink, I'd have health care. Each month, it costs about 600 euro to live here. My room, train tickets, school, food. My main motivation, of course, was saving money. Was it? Because I'm pretty sure the first thing you said was you'd be able to drink. So I think that's where your money's going to be going. Ah, you can take a boy out of South Carolina, but you can't take a tall boy out of his hand. Germany doesn't see free college as a drain on the economy, but believes that investing in young people's education, even that of non-Germans, will benefit the German economy in the long run. Compare that to how we pay for school in the United States, which is basically an F-U-I-O-U, as student debt just hit $1.5 trillion. Though to be fair, student debt is a job creator for student debt collectors. Germany's example flies in the face of another myth spouted about socialist policies, that they're not good for business. They stifle innovation and competition, and heavy regulations and taxes only make companies move abroad. Work for less, Bangladesh. But take Denmark. The government spends a lot on job training and education, especially for the unemployed. And Danish companies participate in these programs because it means they have a stronger workforce. So when Danes get laid off, they get help learning a new skill that isn't putting together IKEA furniture for strangers. Mostly because they hate the Swedes. In 2015, Denmark was ranked by Forbes as being the best country for business and is consistently ranked as the happiest country on earth, something Fox News blowhards like Bill O'Reilly desperately try to find a way to undermine. When I heard the Danes were the happiest people on earth, I thought back to my ancestors in Ireland who were beheaded and raped by the Danish Vikings. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a happy experience. I yeah, Bill, way to dunk on the libs by bringing up an unrelated grudge you've been carrying with you since the year 800. Later in the same conversation, the intrepid reporters hit on another myth about socialism. The it'll never work in America myth. There are five and a half million Danes. Right. And that's it. We have 300 million people here, Bill. Okay, this myth I really don't understand the logic of. If there are more people paying more taxes into a social welfare state, doesn't that mean more money? What, suddenly Americans don't know how to scale up? We gave the world Starbucks, Walmart, and King Kong. We're all about scaling up. Another myth about socialism is that it requires big government, and that government is not democratic. But look at Norway, a country whose economic model has been called a 21st century version of socialism, and has also been ranked as the world's best democracy. After the global financial crisis of 2008, Norway decided not to tighten its purse strings. Instead, under a socialist finance minister, federal control of financial assets in sectors like oil expanded, and the government directed that money into their sovereign wealth fund, or national bank, which is part of the reason Norwegians enjoy benefits like universal health care, education, guaranteed parental leave, and oh yeah, no national debt. As far as democracy goes, Norwegians are automatically registered to vote, and 78% did in the last election, compared to our 55% in the last election. Not that the stakes were high. <sighs>
Norway has nine parties instead of our two, a parliamentary system of proportional representation instead of our winner-take-all system, and Norwegians have reindeer. Can we have nothing? When all of the myths above fail them, conservatives always resort to a final myth about socialism, which is capitalism is better. Die-hard capitalists insist there is no alternative to their system. Sure, it's claimed as many, if not more, lives than socialism, from colonialism to rampant poverty caused by neoliberal economics to, oh yeah, the millions who died in wars fought to preserve its dominance, capitalism is still better. Just watch how economist Milton Friedman, the Bunsen of free enterprise, defended his ideology in an interview with a barrage of whataboutisms. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. In Norway, we've been over this. They're with the reindeer. But if that kind of cynicism is what defends unfettered capitalism, maybe we should rethink it. But listen, I am happy to be proven wrong, which is why I'm going to consult my conservative panel. Hey, conservative panel, what do you think about all these socialist myths? What, that, what they're not myths. They're not myths at all. Generosity is evil. If you give people free handouts, they're gonna have to eat rats out of buckets. And don't ask me to link cause and effect. Cause and effect is fake news. Okay, okay, listen, conservative panel, I know you're confused and angry because things aren't always black or white. History is fluid, and your president is going down in a fiery ball of lies. But maybe keep an open mind about socialism. Capitalism is built on greed, which, as it turns out, is not best for either people or or business, or the planet. Maybe capitalism could use some socialism. Americans are innovative and hopeful, so maybe the world has yet to see the best of socialism, and even capitalism. Um, actually, Jesus turned the other cheek to ignore a homeless person. <sighs> Thanks once again for watching News Broke. If you haven't heard, this is our third to last video, which is oh so sad, but guess what? We've got two years, two years of videos every single week. So I don't want to see the tears unless you've seen all the two years. You know what I'm saying? We're going to miss this. We're going to miss you. But thank you so much for supporting. Still subscribe. You know, who knows? We might come back someday. Follow me on Twitter at Franny Fio. Follow the entire team at Franny Fio. Okay, that was Francesca Fiorentini. Um, and it turned out that was not her last, or one of her last uh, presentations. Newsbroke came back with a whole set of play, uh, <coughs> shows available online. And that was kind of a masterpiece of hers. I like that one very good because she takes apart the argument against socialism. The basic, the basic uh, myth about socialism is that it's not good for you. It's bad for you to get things. I mean, and w one of the uh, sports reporters was saying, well, you give everything, give everybody things for free. They're not being given for free. Taxes. Remember taxes, Vin? Remember those things you pay? That's part of your money.
And the one guy's saying, I can spend my money better than the government. Okay, so are you going to feed the hungry? Are you going to clothe the needy? treat the sick? What about the virus? You're just going to walk along with your hand on your money while there are people dying in the street? Come on! Okay. Labor history in two minutes. The past is the present. Eight hours for work October 24th, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Labor history, October 24th. work week went into effect for U.S. workers. The 40-hour week had been passed as part of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Making five days of eight hours work the national standard had long been a top goal for labor. For decades, union members organized, demonstrated, went on strike, and even died for the right to work eight hours. Labor argued that reducing the long, unregulated hours of toil was a matter of workers' health and safety. It was also a matter of dignity. A more reasonable work week would give workers the time to spend with their families, to pursue other interests, and to have a full life outside of the grinding schedule demanded by many bosses. Before the turn of the 20th century, the eight-hour day movement declared eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will as their motto. In 1886, nationwide rallies and strikes for eight hours took place on May 1st. Today, May Day is celebrated as a workers' holiday around the world in remembrance of that struggle. In 1888, the American Federation of Labor took up the cause and the Carpenters' Union became the standard bearer for the eight-hour day. Ten years later, the United Mine Workers Union members won the eight-hour workday. In 1916, the Adamson Act made eight hours the standard for interstate railroad workers. A decade after that, Ford Motor Company, a leader in U.S. industry, established the 40-hour workweek. Each of these victories were a step along the way to making the eight-hour day a reality and the law of the land. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1995. That was the day that the AFL-CIO convention convened in New York City. At the convention, John Sweeney was elected president of the Federation. It was the first contested election for president in AFL-CIO history. He ran with a slate of labor leaders, including Rich Trumpka, who called themselves the New Voice Slate. Sweeney was president of the Service Employees International Union. He was a New Yorker born in the Bronx. He started his career in labor working for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, then moving to SEIU as a union rep. 
He represented SEIU Local 32B in New York City during two strikes of apartment maintenance workers during the 1970s. In 1980, he was elected president of the International SEIU, a post he held for 15 years. Membership in SEIU nearly doubled from 625,000 to 1.1 million under his leadership. Sweeney gave a powerful speech for his candidacy at the convention. He said, quote, workers look at their paychecks, the political system and the public debate and wonder why nobody is speaking for me. Then, in fear and frustration, they look for leadership to the Rush Limbaugh's who seek scapegoats rather than solutions for problems of stagnant wages, corporate greed, and a fractured society. He pledged that under his leadership, the AFL-CIO would move to commit more resources to organizing these workers. When he won election, Sweeney held good to his campaign promise. He instituted a new initiative, the Union Summer Program, to involve college students in the labor movement. He expanded organizing efforts in the South and Southwest. John Sweeney served five terms as president of the AFL-CIO. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. The year was. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that the bank robber known as Pretty Boy Floyd was gunned down by federal agents in Ohio. He was born Charles Arthur Floyd in 1904 in Georgia. His family moved to Oklahoma when he was a boy. Like many Oklahomans during this era, he fell on hard economic times. Floyd turned to crime. He did a four-year stretch in a Missouri prison for payroll robbery. When he got out, he tried to get a job in the Oklahoma oil fields. Unable to find work, Floyd took up bank robbing. He robbed banks in Kentucky, Ohio, and Missouri. He got caught and convicted in Ohio, but escaped on his train trip to prison. He made his way back to Oklahoma. There he became a folk hero. Locals called him the Robin Hood of the Cookson Hills. Legend had it that Floyd destroyed mortgage papers when he robbed banks, winning him friends among farmers reeling from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Floyd became a national fugitive when he was accused of killing federal agents in Kansas City. He denied he was ever involved in the killings. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, named Floyd public enemy number one. Finally, the law caught up with Floyd in an Ohio cornfield. His body was returned to Oklahoma, where as many as 40,000 came to his funeral. Woody Guthrie remembered Floyd in song. But a many a starving farmer, the same old story told. How the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little home. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Others tell you about a stranger that come to beg a meal. Let's do one more. Um, October 20th. I wanted to celebrate Eugene Debs. This is an example of the energy of the past being moved into the present. I'll bet most people haven't even heard of Eugene Debs. Here's something about Debs. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1926. That was the day that one of the great labor leaders in U.S. history, Eugene V. Debs, died in Elmhurst, Illinois. In 1894, Debs gained national attention when his American Railway Union launched a boycott in support of the striking workers of the Pullman Palace Car Company. The strike and the boycott were crushed by federal troops and a federal court. Debs served six months in jail for his role in the boycott. Later, Debs would again go to jail for standing up for his beliefs. He was convicted for speaking out against U.S. involvement in World War I. He was among the founders of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, in 1905. He ran as a socialist for president of the United States five times, receiving nearly one million votes running his campaign from a prison cell in 1920. In 1891, Debs wrote an article for the Locomotive Fireman's Magazine titled The Unity of Labor. His words stand as an eloquent case for worker solidarity. Debs wrote, quote, If working men were united in sympathetic bonds, if a bricklayer could comprehend the fact that he is dependent on the hod carrier, if the locomotive engineer could grasp the fact that he is dependent on the locomotive fireman, the interdependence of labor would at once constitute a bond of union, a chain whose link, forged and fashioned to hold working men in harmonious alliance, would girt them with a defense in every time of trouble and resist invasion, though assailed by all the plutocrats that ever cursed the earth. Deb spent his life trying to bring about this harmonious alliance of working people and standing up for the causes of peace and justice. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2. Uh, yeah, that little blurb about Debs is uh, really important. It's really important that we look back, not in order to copy or to fall in love with the past. Absolutely not. Not to let the past limit us. Absolutely not. We look back to the past to honor the courage of these people who just put it all on the line for us. I'm thinking of the people in the 1970s who arranged pensions for teachers. Here I am, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, living off this pension that they arranged for me. Yesterday I went into the hospital for uh, an exam. That health plan paid for, for that exam and that treatment. These people were thinking not just of themselves, Mr. Dibbs and all his ilk and all those organizers who got these things. They're thinking of the future generations of working people. And there's no greater thing you can do but join the fight for social justice and equality and uh, anti-racism. I wanted to play this one. This is another one that I played quite a bit. Rock Me Baby. Beverly Guitar Watkins. 
And that was the redoubtable Beverly Guitar Watkins playing on her 78th birthday at the Foundry in Athens, Georgia with the Rick Fowler Band. And it's about time for us to go, but let's take our weekly Our weekly uh, talk with Mr. Block. Okay, Mr. Block is, of course, the cartoon um, creation of Ernst Riebe, uh, an immigrant uh, worker who had a knack for drawing comics. So he made up this guy, Mr. Black. Mr. Block. And he's got a block head. He's a working man, but he still thinks that the boss is okay. He's not afraid of the boss. So here, here he is sitting, smoking a pipe, talking to a woman, saying, those IWWs say that I am afraid of the boss, but don't you believe it. I am independent as can be. In fact, the boss is afraid of me. The boss isn't around, and I will risk a smoke. So he fires up his pipe. I can work just the same, and there's no reason why I shouldn't smoke. For God's sake, here comes the boss. I have to hide the pipe in my pocket. I'm on fire, but I can't put it out before the boss leaves. And the woman is saying to him in the last frame, I believe some of them stories I read about you in solidarity ain't no lies either. Never mind. I saved my job. Just get me more liniment and shut up, Mr. Bob. Okay, let's see. He insults members of the IWW. Mr. Block is walking down the street with his newspaper, and he goes, I'm going to work the different nationalities with those war extras. I've got some with Germans win and some with French win. Now watch me. He's handing out newspapers. Here's a Frenchman. Hurrah for France! They know how to fight. 100,000 Germans killed. Here's a dying. Keep the change, the Frenchman says. Here's a Dutchman. Hurrah for the Germans. They're killing off the French. Germans win. 100,000 French killed. That's worth a quarter, the German guy says. Hurrah for the French. 100,000 Germans killed. Chase yourself. I am French, but I am a working man. Good news, landsman. French have gespielt. Just because I am German, you take me for a patriotic ass, don't you? 
try to give that block a lesson. The Frenchman and the German talk to one another. It's an insult for him to take us as patriots. You see, I am a Frenchman and he is a German, but we belong to the same nationality. What kind of damnation is that, says Mr. Block? And they say, the IWW. All right. Time for us to leave, and for me to leave you over to the tender mercies of Scott O. Walker. Y'all ready for all the blues? This is the B. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. You don't have a seat at the table. Negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the main
of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 4.99 Are the end times upon us? Not yet, my friends. Please, this is an impassioned plea from Pam Benjamin, the director of Mutiny Radio. Let us live past October. You think it's a joke? COVID is decimating all of us, and especially us here at Mutiny Radio. We have money left until October 1st. Don't let anyone sing. 
despite of their size. Please, please go donate to our GoFundMe. Go to mutinyradio.fm and click that GoFundMe button. Or just go to Venmo. Mutiny Radio, all one word. Just Mutiny Radio. Give us five bucks. Help us keep free speech and radical self-expression real and alive here in San Francisco and all over the world. Please donate to our Mutiny Radio. Go fund me and keep us alive in 2020 and beyond. Don't let our world end. I am Italian, and we brought you Fascismus with Mussolini, and before that, the Romans. So if you think you live in a fascist country, well, you do. Antitrump.com is the antivirus to the Trump virus. It started in 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better America. No one thought it would be this bad. He was a 70-year-old yammering nimrod. How bad could it possibly be? We are now in a global pandemic without adequate leadership. Individual politics are not important. We need to rally behind curing the Trump virus. Go to antitrump.com. Poetry reader, this is Bjork's sister, Mjork. It's okay, we also have a soul and a weekly poetry reading on Mutiny Radio's AltaCast. Zoomed every Wednesday at high noon from Glasgow, Scotland. One of our co-hosts from Choose Poetry, Choose Life, Andy Talbot, has a new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin which is available at analogsubmission.com now. Go buy it, and don't let the poets lie to you. Once again, that's Andy Talbot's new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, available at analogsubmission.com. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie.
Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast. 